Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 8. I want to start by thanking everyone who has reached out to me and sent questions or comments, or just let me know that you enjoy listening. I started this podcast as my offering to chip away at the knowledge gap between coffee producers and consumers. And even though it's a short podcast, it takes me a while to get the information written down, get my thoughts collected, and then record them, and then often re-record them because of my poor technology, uh, and then edit that and then upload that. So all that to say, it's really nice when I get to hear from you guys and remember that you know, we're able to have a conversation and not just my monologue. So today we're going to hear from two sides of the value chain in very different parts of the world. Uh, first as a roaster from Canada and then later a producer in India. So this is a continuation of the conversation around how coffee is purchased and the power dynamic that it creates from episode six. So first let's hear from Brendan Adams from Senia Roasters. I just have to say that I love, I haven't had Samia coffee yet, um, but I love that that's the name because as you guys probably know, I'm all about the seed and Samia is a Spanish word for seed. So I can already tell that um, this company really values the seed and the origin of coffee. My name is Brendan Adams and I'm from Montreal, Canada. Something that I've noticed over the years as a specialty coffee buyer is just how often end consumers assume that producers know what their coffee tastes like. While it may be the case that some producers do have the chance to objectively assess their coffee, most producers, the vast majority I would say, really do not have access to this and as a result are reliant fundamentally on a buyer class, whether that's locally or internationally, who have been trained in objective qualitative assessment to decide how much their coffee is worth. It seems to me that there's two large problems in this and that it would be fundamentally number one, that without the ability to consistently taste and acknowledge the quality of your product or assess the quality of your product, it's hard to decide best practices for cultivating said product. Um, it would be like a roaster here not being able to cup after doing different roast profiles. We would never be happy to roast blindly and then serve. We would want to use that data to improve. Without being able to cup their coffee during the harvest, or at least once a harvest, producers really are, are unable to use the knowledge that they, they put forward per year to assess whether or not it's working. Secondarily, it sets up a bit of a power imbalance in which buyers are left to tell producers how much their product is worth based on the quality that they find in the cup. While hopefully this is done in an honest manner, it's undoubtedly the case that there are buyers who will attempt to manipulate this system by downgrading a coffee in order to achieve a quality product for a lower price. I think that we should be finding ways to encourage producers to learn more about the objective assessment of their coffee so that they can have more agency in its sale going forward. Um, and that should be an industry-wide priority. So I appreciate Brendan's comments because he points out an inconsistency in the system. Roasters don't roast once and let their customers tell them how they did and then let the customer decide how much that coffee is worth. But that's often the case with coffee producers. He mentioned that most producers rely on a buyer class to decide how much their coffee is worth. This always makes me think of the saying, who watches the watchman? 
right? Who's in charge of watching the people that are in charge of watching us? I think in this system, we don't realize that there are very few checks and balances. Most business is conducted based on relationships and handshakes and someone's word or someone's honor. That's why in last week's episode, episode seven, I wanted to talk about the importance of travel for building those relationships because it relies so heavily on these interpersonal connections because there's very few uh, rules and regulations and checks and balances to reinforce it. So you need a very strong personal relationship to make sure that uh, what you want to happen is actually going to happen. So the simple issue is producers who don't cup their coffee don't have the power to improve their coffee. It's an obvious statement, but one that is constantly downplayed. Even when given feedback from buyers, it's difficult to improve because this assessment is done at the end of the season. And that's after most of the work has already been done. And then they have that information for the following year, but the next year there's going to be different challenges. Uh, the weather's going to be different. The growing season will be different. And so the advice that they previously got may no longer be valid for this current season. And this alone is bad enough, but I've seen it lead to a new disturbing trend. Since the buyers are generally more knowledgeable about a coffee's quality, and since they cup or taste more than producers do, they are uniquely in a position to tell the producer how to improve or change their coffee. And this is disturbing to me because it presents itself as a positive thing, as a way buyers can be helpful. But I've seen it do the opposite and actually reinforce colonial power dynamics. And I know we try to avoid coffee's unpleasant colonial history, thinking that it was so long ago and things are different now, and we hold up specialty coffee as an example, where producers are getting paid more, they're having a stronger voice, um, they're a lot more present that it's changing. But specialty coffee is a very, very small percentage of coffee industry. And what I've noticed is I think that the details have changed, but much of the mentality persists. It's funny, when I talk about coffee sometimes to non-coffee friends and mention, you know, how long the chain is and the diminished role producers play and how roasters are held up as these rock stars, you know, my general soapbox stuff, I often get the question, why is a system so broken? And this puzzled me because the system isn't broken. Coffee was brought from Africa and planted in the Americas, and for 200 years, it's been working exactly as planned. It's a labor-intensive crop that was only able to be successful because of abundant slave labor. The system was set up this way, and it's still working as intended. And as was intended, most coffee producers didn't and still don't have access to information, so they rely on buyers. And most of the buyers are suggesting simple, you know, best practices, which can seem harmless enough or even be helpful. But in my view, by recommending things like raised beds or stainless steel tanks or certain processing methods like carbonic maceration, they are asking a producer to make a financial investment, often without the promise to purchase the coffee or without deeper knowledge into the financial realities or production challenges of that producer. The buyer is still dictating terms. The buyer is still the expert. The buyer has more knowledge. It's my job to work with producers and hear about the advice they've been given. And you guys, it's often very terrible and incomplete advice. Even if something sounds like a good idea, it may not be a good idea in context. So what works in a dry, arid African climate is not appropriate for a cold and humid Guatemalan mill. 
or a long 100-hour fermentation that makes excellent coffee in the chilly mountains of Colombia can be a disaster in hot AF El Salvador. And I can't leave this topic without talking about the word empower. I think it's patronizing to tell someone you will empower them or to say that you are empowering. If you're telling someone you're empowering them, you're starting from a point of superiority. It starts off as a vertical relationship, not a horizontal relationship of equals. In a vertical relationship, I'm up here and you're down here and I'm doing a noble thing by bringing you up to my level. But I've seen this play out in various scenarios in coffee where producers are very grateful and loyal to a certain buyer who has, quote, unquote, empowered them. Someone who has discovered them and brought them out of obscurity. But they're still not equals because there's this like lingering element of a debt. It's kind of the mentality of you have to dance with the one that brung you. And I don't mean to imply that it's malicious or even conscious. I mean, I think the thing that's most like troubling and conflicting for me is that I'm not like producers don't complain about this to me. They're usually very happy and very, you know, they're very grateful. They're, I'm the one who's upset about this. I'm upset about this on their behalf. I've spoken to producers who feel such a debt of gratitude that they allow buyers to have significant and lasting input on their business practices. And I've seen in some cases where producers are afraid of offending a buyer or losing their business by telling them the truth about something. And in this case, they may be getting more for their coffee than their neighbor, but I wouldn't describe that as genuinely empowered. To me, they're in a similar vertical relationship, just one rung up the ladder. I think it's a fundamentally disempowering setup you know, structure to tell someone I'm giving you power. I think like that's so contradictory and troubling for me. And I realize this because I did it. I was guilty of it. It used to be part of my mission statement to empower producers with unconventional practices, right? So I'm trying to empower producers by bringing my practices of microbiology and monitoring fermentations and then using different yeast and bacteria to Uh, intentionally ferment the coffee instead of letting kind of mother nature do whatever mother nature wants to do. So it's been my mission to share with producers the tools to improve their coffee. Um, And so I use that word because I I meant it, but the more that I saw it used in, you know, by different people in different contexts, it just felt, it felt kind of icky and it's still a concept that I believe in. I am still trying to provide these tools, but the concept of empowering someone um, no longer feels appropriate to me. And so I've removed it from my profile. I no longer use it. And every time I see it or read it anywhere else, it's like a little twinge of like, Ugh. I know what you're trying to say, but it, it just feels like that word has been overused and no longer represents what I think the genuine intention of that word is. I don't know, for me, it kind of feels like a a show don't tell thing. Like if you have to say it, are you really doing it? I think about this a lot uh, when I'm traveling and I I pass restaurants with like big neon signs that say like fancy dinner. I'm like, if it's, if it's fancy, do you really have to say that? Like, just be a nice dinner. Like, a big fancy neon sign pointing to your restaurant establishment does not really make me think that it's a fancy place. But anyway. A 
Now we're going to hear from Vivek. Hi, Lucia. I'm Vivek here, uh, a fourth generation coffee producer from India. Just found your podcast and they have been an eye opener for me. I want to learn about modern fermentation methods and other new techniques. Would the Q grader or Q producer course best suit me as a producer? Anyway, you can guide me. It would be great as I am relatively clueless about how to start. Thank you. So first, I want to kind of marvel at a few things. Number one, someone in India is listening to my little homemade podcast, which is so cool. The internet is amazing. Um, number two, he's a fourth generation producer and still feels clueless. For four generations, they've been operating on probably the exact same information. And like I've mentioned before, the, the consumer, the buyers are becoming more sophisticated and they're growing and they're wanting different things. But here's an example of fourth generation still doing the same things. And he's not sure how to keep up, how to, um, bridge that gap. And number three, again, because of the internet, I, I think we're in a really interesting time where he can educate himself. This is a truly unique time in history where the structure has been that producers have relied heavily on buyers for information, for, um, you know, prices, for most of the structure of how coffee is purchased. But that doesn't have to be the case anymore. Um, producers can listen to podcasts. They can, you know, download some best practices PDF. There's like, there's a lot of options that weren't available before and they're still not available to everyone. And I also at some point need to talk about the, the quality of all information available on the internet is not of the same caliber. So there's still a couple of hurdles to go through in terms of, you know, where, what information you have access to and what is the quality of that information. But the bigger concept is that this exists now, and that's really cool. So he asked if I recommend the Q Grader course for him. I think it's essential for Vivek and all producers to learn to cup their coffees, but is the Q course the only way? I'm not sure about this. The course is about $2,000, and that doesn't include travel and lodging expenses. If you have that kind of money, I say go for it. If funds are limited... I would instead look at the CQI's processing class level two. I've done that class and I found it to be very valuable for producers. So this is a similar amount of time. It's a week where it's taught at a mill location and you get to work with coffee. It's usually during harvest time because there needs to be coffee available. And then you go through the different uh, processing methods. You process a wash, you process a honey, you process a natural. It's a really good foundation for best practices and learning the differences between those processes. Um, but there's not a cupping component. So it's sort of a different take on how to improve your coffee minus that cupping portion. So it's not a replacement for the Q grader course, but I think that it's, it's, it makes more sense to me to do that first and then potentially do the Q class. So if you can do both of those classes, that would put you miles above most of the rest of the producers in the world. Uh, another option outside of the CQI is to hire someone like Mary Hallbrooks. She's an SEA certified sensory instructor based in Minneapolis. So Mary has a PhD in horticulture and worked for 20 plus years in research and academia, giving her a strong foundation in education. And she's a really cool option because she can travel to you and teach SEA courses and personalized curriculum. 
Her website is allbeansconsidered.com. Another option is to have a cupping group. I mean, I think this is, you know, basic and, and fundamental and pretty cheap because it's a handful of people who get together and regularly taste coffee and talk about it. And even if no one is trained, even if it's a completely informal gathering where you just describe what you taste, you begin to set a foundation and you don't need to know the right terms and you don't need to know the right descriptors, but it's only by tasting dozens and then eventually hundreds of cups that the subtleties will become big differences. Because when you start tasting, even if you have an entire you know, dictionary's worth of sensory terms in your head, it takes a while to place that word to the flavor that you're tasting. So it takes a long time, a, a big buildup of intentionally tasting coffee for those things to start to kind of spring out. And then what used to be subtle will suddenly become big differences. And knowing how to score is important. But I think you can still learn to evaluate coffee without the score. The score helps provide context. It lets you communicate with buyers. It's important, but it's not all about the score. Because if we can move away from a number, from a number score, and more towards quality attributes, it makes that number a little bit less important, a little bit less weighty. So it's my belief, even if you don't have formal sensory training, if you taste your own coffee more than anyone else, you will be an expert in your coffee. And I don't think producers need to be the best cupping experts, but I think cupping will make them experts in their own coffee. And that's truly empowering. Outside of cupping, if you want to learn more about processing, I have three videos available on my website with slides where I go more deeply into processing practices. And you can find those on my website at Lucia dot coffee slash resources and that's l-u-x-i-a dot coffee slash resources okay thanks again for hanging out with me this week thanks to brendan and vivek for chiming in and remember life's too short to drink bad coffee <laughs>